should now die with those who, is most, who are most unholy. So hanging there, he's hanging there now next to the two criminals. And the first criminal turns to him and the first criminal says, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Just nine words there. Just nine words there, but you know, if you look at it carefully, what the criminal says is such a true reflection of our hearts, you and I, when you think about it. Let me explain. This man who says, if you are the son, come down. Save yourself and save us. Now, this man is absolutely clear about what he wants. He is really very clear. There's just one thing he wants. That is not Jesus. He doesn't care less about, about Jesus. He just wants one thing. And he's very clear about that. If you take me down from here, you are king. You are Lord. So for him, saving his life is the only thing he wants. Nothing else the matter. He'll happily make anyone king who would only get him off the cross. But isn't that very clear, a reflection of your heart and my heart? There are stuff that we want, and we want them really badly. And if we would only have them, Jesus can be Lord of our lives. It doesn't matter, but we must have that thing whether it's a career ambition or whether it's some kind of a relationship that you are wanting so much to have. Many of us are like this first man. You come to God and you want what you want. And you're very clear about what you want. And you'll say something like, if you are real, just give this one thing to me and I'll worship you. I'll read the Bible daily. I'll attend church regularly. But this is what I want. Just give this thing to me. You know, that if there is pivotal. That word if there, it's, it's, it's really crucial. If you're the Son of God, take me down from this cross. You know, right through our lives, we have this clear line of demarcation that we draw in our own hearts. And we know it so clearly. Things that are crucial, things that are non-negotiable, things that are absolutely central, and things that are on the periphery, things that are negotiable, things that are not central. And very often we draw a clear line and we say to God, God, if you would give these things to me, these things that I, you know, I just, these are things I must have. Without them I die. If you give them to me, I'll make you my God. Do you know what he's saying? Really? Do you know what you are saying when you say something like that? You're really saying to God, God, if you give me these gods, these real gods, then I'll worship you. In other words, you can have my God, uh, or you can have me serve you as God if you would give me my true God. We don't realize that. But that's what we're saying all the time. I find myself saying that too. There are stuff... I treasure their stuff I cherish. And sometimes I cherish them far more than I cherish God. And God becomes my bellboy. He's there to give me what I want. So, nine words from this first thief, short as they are, they're very instructive for us this morning. Are we like this first thief on the cross? We want what we want, how we want it, when we want it. And Jesus is simply 
a purveyor of those goods that we really want. But then you have that's the first criminal. That's what he wants. But now we have the second man on the cross. And let's take a look at what he wants. He turns to his compatriot and he says, Don't you fear God? We're here for what we deserve. But this man has not done nothing wrong. And he, and he turns to Jesus and he says perhaps the most significant thing he has ever seen in his life. He says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, notice he does not say, Lord, remember me if you come into your kingdom. He says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's as if he has already recognized at this point in time that this man is the promised Messiah. And notice that he doesn't ask Jesus to relieve him of his physical suffering. He doesn't ask Jesus to save his skin like the other criminal. He doesn't jockey for position and power like James and John. He's unlike the first thief. He doesn't say, I'll believe you if you do such and such a thing. It's as if he's saying, if I have you, I can, I can go through any horrendous thing. It's okay. Now what's happened? What's happened is this. Perhaps this man has this if in his lifetime before, hanging there on the cross. But he has come to make this great exchange. What was once central and non-negotiable to him is now God himself. So he's come to make this great shift. And you and I, we need to pray like this second man. We need to make this shift. We need to come to see that we hunger for affirmation. We hunger for uh, acceptance. We, we hunger for security. But if we would come to that place where we could see that Jesus himself is our affirmation, our security, you would need nothing else. So that's what the second man experienced, that once he has Jesus as his treasure, life can throw anything at him, he'll be all right. Now when you come to think about it, this man's faith is really amazing. I know for a short story like that, we just run through it very quickly. We don't pause to think about it, but I've had the privilege this week because I've had to preach on this text and take a look at it closer. I've come to see that this man's faith is amazing. Just think of it. Just think that, that this thief believes in Jesus at a time when Jesus looks anything like a king. He's hanging there like a criminal. It doesn't look like a king at all. It doesn't look like, like the Messiah at all. At all. Uh, he's been badly beaten up. He's got dried Roman spit all over his face. He's got a crown not made of gold or, or diamond, but from a shabby brunch. And he says, Lord, remember me. That word there is curios. Truly someone who you must have in your life to be your Lord. He says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What kingdom? This man is dying like a criminal. Just think of it. He believes in Jesus the Messiah before he sees the earth shake, before darkness shrouds the land, before the veil in the temple was torn in two. He believes before the resurrection. He believes before the ascension. What faith? 
When you come to think about it, his faith is amazing. It puts the faith of the disciples to shame because even the disciples didn't have the kind of faith that this man had. They had seen him walking on water, but he didn't believe. They had seen him feed the multitude, they didn't come to believe. They've seen him heal the sick, raise the dead. And yet when he's on the cross, they all forsook him and fled. But this man, despite all the evidences against the fact that Jesus could be king, simply comes to Jesus and says to him, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now what did Jesus say to him in reply? Jesus always responds to faith. And he turns to the man and he says to him, Today you will be with me in paradise. That's the second word on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise. In other words, the essence of what our Lord is saying is this. Why would I not remember you? This is the reason I came to planet earth. It is for this reason, it's for this purpose that I'm hanging here on the cross. You know, the thief asks to be remembered. And Jesus is saying to him, I will do more than remember you before this evening is over. You will be with me in paradise. That day began with the criminal walking to his place of execution. And that day ended with him walking the streets of gold in heaven. You know, from a natural reading of that narrative, it would seem to us that Jesus was the first amongst the three to die. And so Jesus, Jesus was right up there in heaven waiting to welcome this man home. Spurgeon says, this man who was our Lord's last companion on earth was his first companion as a guest in the gate of paradise. The first person that greeted Jesus in heaven or rather the first person that Jesus greeted in heaven was not Peter, not James, not John, not even the Virgin Mary. She wasn't the first person that he greeted in heaven. Not even his own mother. Not even the greatest apostle, Paul. Strange as it sounds, it was a convict, a depraved sinner, a totally broken man who became the first guest in heaven. So we've considered what the first criminal said, what the second criminal said. Now let's take a look at what Jesus says to the second man. Uh, yes, to the second man. The second man asks to be remembered, and Jesus says in turn, today you will be with me in paradise. Now he asks to be remembered, and Jesus offers him paradise. He asked to be remembered. Why would Jesus give him paradise when someone asks to be remembered? Because in paradise, that's the place of ultimate remembrance. This man will be remembered without end, without, will be remembered for all eternity. You know, one of the strongest human desire is never to be forgotten. It's in every one of us. You may not 
articulate it, you, may, you might never have expressed it, but deep in your heart, there is this longing to never be forgotten. Uh, we have this desperate need to, to know that people will remember us when we are gone. You know, long before stones were used for homes, they were used as tombs. Because we have this desperate need that we might not be forgotten. When I was a young man, I used to attend an Anglican church back home in Malaysia. And I used to be fascinated by those brass plugs that were riveted behind wooden church pews. And almost every church pew has a, wooden, has, has a brass plug riveted to it. And on those brass plugs are names of people who have donated those pews. And they chose brass riveted on oak because these things would last a long time and their names would be remembered for, for many centuries to come. And I would remember that marble baptism font as you walked into church. And on that marble baptism font was carved the names of people who donated that font. There was one name I always remember, Robert McKenzie, 1886. I wouldn't have a clue who this guy is. I'm just trying to explain to you that much as we love to be remembered, it is a futile experience. It is a futile exercise. You will be forgotten. Those names on the plugs, no one knows who they are. You know, 75 years from now, virtually no one would have known that you ever existed on this planet Earth. But still we yearn for immortality. The trauma of impermanence is hauntingly unbearable. Really. If you read this narrative in a Greek text, you will find that the verb remember is in the imperfect tense, which means that he said it over and over and over again. Remember me, Lord, please, please don't forget me. Please remember me. As I see, the trauma of impermanence is, is really unbearable. So it's our way of resisting being forgotten, being consigned to oblivion. We don't want to have to die, really. You know, all the rest of the lower life forms treat death as normal. The human species is the only species on earth that, that treats death with such great revulsion. We flinch from it. The way we embalm the dead, the way we dress up the dead. It's like we're trying to fight against it. We're trying to deny that it has taken place. Ernest Becker, in his book, The Denial of Death, says the modern Western civilization or the, Western, the modern Western culture is obsessed with its attempt to evade death. And of course, you know that famous chip by Woody Allen. He says, I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. You've heard of that, of course. Death is an oddity. It contradicts every human desire in your heart and in your mind. When death approaches your own doorstep, when it comes, I believe you will be able to say to yourself with some kind of a startling uh, unbelief, what? So soon? But I've got so much of life to live. You know, all of us would, will die with that music pounding 
strongly in our hearts, all of us. And that's why Audius Huxley once said, there comes a time when one says, even of Shakespeare, even of Beethoven, is that all? Have you ever experienced it on this earth when never truly, 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 completely, absolutely happy? Have you never experienced that before, that on this earth, never, there never is one single moment when you're completely, truly, absolutely, wholesomely happy? In fact, in the happiest moment that you can recall, you cry, you shed a tear. Why is it that the, the mother of the bride is always crying? <laughs> that should be her happiest day. Surely happiness and tears don't configure. Yet they do. It's as if in your happiest moments, someone comes up from behind you, taps you on the shoulder, and says to you, didn't I tell you, that on the day you eat of that fruit, you will die. Death is not in the original blueprint. Death is not in the original blueprint. It is an intrusion. So really, we should not be too hard on ourselves for, being, uh, for, treating, death, for, for treating death with revulsion. We shouldn't be too hard on ourselves because we should treat death with revulsion. This is not natural. It is not natural. That's why we keep saying like this second thief, remember me, remember me, remember me. We were created to live, not to die. When Jesus says to the criminal today, you will be with me in paradise, our Lord is giving him the ultimate gift. What's that? Life. Ultimately, what we want is not to have to die. Now, I notice some of you here who are in your young teens, I think, in 1980, I believe, looking at some of you. So those of you who are roughly my age, you will remember the 1980 film or movie, Fame. Now, what's the theme song of Fame? I'm going to live forever. I'm going to learn how to fly. I'm going to make it to heaven. Light up the sky like a flame. Remember that. See, ultimately what we want is not to have to die. Remember in the Garden of Eden, the snake seduced Adam and Eve with that false hope of immortality. What did he say? Eratis sicut dea. In Latin it says, you shall be as gods, you shall not die. It's a lie, Genesis 3.5. It's a lie because they died. But here in the words of Jesus to the thief, is a great reversal of the doom that the snake brought into this world. So what Jesus said is the greatest reversal of the words of the snake. And Jesus says to the thief, Promises the thief a life that will have no end. Promises him paradise. Now, the question is this. What is paradise? I want to be as clear as I possibly can because it can get quite technical 
So I'll just kind of simply run through it very clearly what paradise is. When righteous people died during Old Testament times, they couldn't go directly into heaven. They couldn't because Jesus had not yet come to die for their sins. There was no heaven for them to go to. Remember Jesus once said, no one has seen God at any time and no one has ascended into heaven. This is the clearest teaching, really, that there was no one in heaven at that time, because heaven had not yet been instantiated. So when someone dies during the Old Testament times, his body went to a grave to wait for the resurrection, while his soul departed to Sheol. And before Jesus rose from the dead, there were two compartments in Sheol. There was paradise, for those who have been righteous and who have died before Jesus came. I believe you will find the Greek philosopher Socrates there in paradise. But there is the other compartment in paradise, the tormented side, where there is much torment. And that's for those who die unrighteously before God. But before Jesus rose from the dead, there were, these, there were these two compartments. And then Ephesians 5 tells us that before Jesus ascended to heaven, when his body was still lying in the grave, his soul went to the paradise side of Sheol. And he emptied it. He vacated it. He took the entire paradise to heaven. So when a Christian dies today, she goes immediately to heaven. Because heaven is now instantiated after the ascension of Jesus Christ. But people who die unbelieving, even today, they go to a place called Hades. Hades is only a temporary place for the day. The day will come when Hades will be thrown into Gehana. And Gehana is the place of unending fire, the lake of fire. You read all about that in Revelation 20. So in our story this morning, we have two men standing on the crossroads of their lives, breathing their very last breath. This is the last closing minutes of their lives. In a matter of minutes, both of them will be dead. Both of them just about 10 meters from the gates of heaven and hell. As a minister, I've seen countless people in hospital beds, in hospices, and intensive care units breathe their last breath. And I've also have had the honor of praying for many of them who have lived godly lives and commending them to heaven. Every day, hundreds of people reach this crossroads of their lives. Only hours, only minutes, only seconds. Which gate will we choose? So both convicts have the opportunity to choose. One rejected the gift of life, and he plummeted into the eternal place where God is not, and the other humbly accepted Jesus and is received into paradise. Now this story that I've just read out to us this morning has been written for you and for me. Where will you be when you pass on from this earth? And if you think it is to heaven that you will go, you had better be sure that your name has been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You know, in ancient cities, the, the guards would keep rolls 
list of names of citizens. People will come in and out of the city gate and they will check their names against the list. And that's the context of Revelation 21, 27. Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life will be allowed in. I want to close with a true story now. And with that I will close. Ruth Anna McKenzie, professional singer, tells the story, it's a true story, how many years ago she was asked to sing at a wedding in Seattle. It was a plush and a posh wedding thrown by one of the wealthiest in the city. His daughter was getting married. And the reception was to be held on the two top floors of Seattle's Columbia Towers, the city's tallest skyscraper. And Ruth Anna and her husband Roy were excited about the wedding. And the wedding came, and Ruth Anna sang beautifully at the wedding. And when it was over, they made their way to the reception desk. There were waiters in tuxedos, offering luscious bites and exotic, exotic beverages. And everyone there was just so happy to be there. And someone ceremoniously cut the satin ribbon, jumped across the bottom of the stairs, and announced that the wedding reception was just about to begin. At the top of the stairs, the matronet with a bound book greeted the guests outside the door. May I have your name, please? May I have your name, please? I'm Ruth Anna Metzer, and this is my husband, Roy. He searched under M. I'm not finding it. Would you please spell it out for me? Ruth Anna spelled out her name slowly. And after searching the book, the matronet looked up and said, I'm sorry, but your name is not, just not here. There must be a mistake, Ruth Anna replied. I'm the singer. I sang at the wedding. And the gentleman very gently replied, that doesn't matter. Without your name in the book, we cannot let you attend the banquet. And he motioned to the waiter and said, show these people the service elevator, please. And they were ushered out. And as they were ushered out, they passed beautifully decorated tables laden with bowls upon bowls of shrimp and whole smoked salmon surrounded by magnificently carved ice sculptures. And adjacent to the banquet area, there was this orchestra preparing to play, all of them dressed in white tuxedos. And the waiter led Ruthanna and Roy to the service elevator, ushered them, them in, greeted them a very pleasant evening, and pressed G for parking garage. And after locating their car and driving several miles in silence, Roy reached over and put his hand on Ruth Anna's knees. Sweetheart, what happened? And Ruth Anna replied, when the invitation arrived, I was so busy, I never bothered, I never bothered to RSVP. Besides, I was the singer. Surely I could go to the reception without returning the RSVP. And Ruth Anna began weeping not because she missed that lavish banquet that she was invited, but because she suddenly realized she had a small taste of what it would be like for somebody one day 
to stand before Jesus and to find their names not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And Ruth Anna, when he wrote that book, he actually wrote, she actually wrote that book to tell this story. In her book she says, if your name is not in the Lamb's Book of Life, they will put you on an elevator that doesn't stop at a garage. You know, throughout the ages, countless people have been too busy to respond to the invitation of Jesus Christ to his wedding banquet, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Many assume that their names will be there. After all, they teach Sunday school. After all, they're an elder of a church. They're a deacon of a church. They've been baptized. They've even sung at the choir and served in the soup kitchen. But if you do not respond to Christ's invitation to forgive you your sins, your names will not be written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And when you are denied entrance into heaven's wedding banquet, they will put you in an elevator that truly does not stop. It will take you to the place where the first thief went. Have you said yes to Christ for his invitation to join him in his wedding feast and to spend eternity with him? Have you? You need to think about this before the sun sets today. Shall we pray? Lord, thank you for your word today. And thank you for just every symbol of someone who, who can be elevated. The name Eli. The one who is elevated. The one who, who, who is risen. And Father, as we have dedicated him to you, with the prayer that you elevate him in his life and you raise him to newness of life, we pray for ourselves. We pray for ourselves as we have heard this message. Lord, we ask that we not, may not miss that great wedding feast that you've invited us to. The Son of God came to save those who are lost. And Lord, this morning, help us to remember where we stand before you. And give us grace. Give us grace to make that decision to live for you if we have not. But if we have and we have somehow slacked over the years, Tonight is just as good as any night to make that fresh recommitment, that fresh dedication to hand our lives over to you. Thank you for time that we may amend our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <laughs>